Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, a.k.a. Possibility Man. We're committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Our guest today is Dr. Cindy Howard. She is a board-certified chiropractic internist and nutritionist. She's also a professional speaker and the author of a new book as of 2023, Positively Altered, Finding Happiness at the Bottom of a Chemo Bag. Dr. Howard, welcome to the show today. Oh, thank you. It's such a privilege. It's great to spend some time with you. Okay. Look, I've been looking forward to this opportunity for a few months now, so i got a ton of questions to ask. But first, it's a reminder to our listeners and our viewers, follow, like, and share this podcast wherever you find it. Your support matters. It helps us attract guests like Dr. Howard. So look, my first question, this is the Possibility Action Network. We are always curious about how people get into the career that they're in. So how did you come about being a chiropractic doctor? How did it happen for you? It, 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 you know, it's a great question. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a lengthy answer because there's uh-huh. definitely a story. And what I would love to tell you is I had this amazing experience growing up and I come from a, you know, generation of chiropractic physicians and I don't have any of that. So you go back to my, you know, my younger years in school and I was always involved in dance and in sport and very active in that community. And when I went to college, I decided to major in exercise physiology. Well, when you graduate with a degree in exercise physiology, at the time, there were not a lot of amazing opportunities So I felt that I needed to to go a little bit further and I had decided to become a physical therapist. Well, like a lot of great doctors in my field, some of us don't always have great grades and we know more than the tests show. So when I applied at the time for physical therapy school, I couldn't get in. Hmm. It was extremely competitive. Um, You know, I just didn't have the grades. And at the time, you know, they didn't care about an interview or anything else. It was purely the piece of paper you submitted to get accepted. So I stepped out of school uh, and on my father's recommendation, he said, go into sales. You're going to be great at it. And I went, okay, because I didn't know what else to do. And I got my very first job out of college, which was the best and worst job I have ever had. And what I did was, is I was reselling long distance services, nothing to do with exercise or sport, Um, made a lot of money, spent a lot of money and thought, oh, I just don't want to do this for the rest of my life. So in talking to a few people still in the industry, and it's sort of a joke, but they said, why would you want to go to physical therapy school and be told what to do by other practitioners? Because at the time, that's really how physical therapy worked. Hmm. And instead, you could go to chiropractic school and tell other people what to do. And I thought, oh, I really love to tell other people what to do. (laughs) (laughs) And I was sold. So I looked into chiropractic school in the state of Illinois, because that's where I lived. And I didn't want to relocate at the time. And Hmm. we have one university. And I applied and got in and, you know, as they say, the rest is is history. And that's really how I got into chiropractic medicine initially. Yeah, that's interesting. And your father saw a good deal in you because he said, look, sales, that means that there's something about your communication skills and the like, and, and you're surely demonstrating that as a public speaker, which we'll talk about a little later. Well, it was either that or he wanted me out of the house and wanted to stop <laughs> supporting me, right? He needed me uh, to get a job that made some money. So, you know, the the, the checks stopped coming, right? Um, <laughs> we've got to get the kids on their own eventually. So maybe a little bit of both. Indeed, indeed. Hey, look, in my introduction of you, I mentioned that you're a board certified chiropractic internist and nutritionist. Firstly, 
what does it mean to be board certified? Right. So it's a specialty that within the profession, you take extra coursework, Mm -hmm. hours and hours and hours of extra coursework, and then you have to prove clinical competency in that subject, both via a written exam. So there goes that test again, Mm -hmm. and and, in a clinical exam as well. So that was really important to me to make sure that I passed both those things in order to get a few extra letters behind my name. But it gave me really a niche within the profession to look at. So we're underneath chiropractic, we can go just straight chiropractic, musculoskeletal work. We can go radiology, we can go orthopedics, we can go neurology, or in my case, I did internal medicine and nutrition. Uh So it was a way to take that branch just as they do in the medical field of having a specialty underneath the main heading of the degree that we earn. Yeah, and you, you know, you're more than just a practitioner. Uh, you head organizations and gosh, so in administrating, how did you get involved with that? What what attracted you to, for example, to head the chiropractic uh, association in your state? What what pulled you in that direction? Oh, well, what, what, what I do, and I'd love to take credit for running it, but I don't. Um, I serve as the American Chiropractic Association, Illinois delegate. So think of it as being a state senator, however, way less glamorous and way less, <laughs> way less work from that standpoint, but within the professional organization. So I represent all the doctors in Illinois on a national level. And, you know, part of our goal is to facilitate policy and improve you know, relationships, let's say with insurance carriers or reimbursement for patients and just, you know, how to improve that doctor patient experience. Understood. Hey, look, I'm going to jump right into your book. Other questions I have, we'll follow this, but but this book has, this is the most provocative title I've seen in a long time, Positively Altered and Then Finding Happiness at the Bottom of a Chemo Bag. (laughs) Why did you write this book, Dr. Howard? Yeah, well, so almost 10 years ago, I found a lump in my neck. And that lump turned out to be a swollen lymph node. And I thought, oh, this is really weird. I'm not sick. Well, you fast forward through a a series of tests that I ran on myself and and, and walking through this journey, where I self diagnosed Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I had a pretty big speed bump that I needed to, to run over in my life. And I kept a journal, which is now this book, the memoir of my experiences through that journey, uh, all the way from self-diagnosis to the end of the final treatment, and then even some postscript to that. And, And the book really became very important to me because what I realized was where it was very therapeutic for me to get through that journey, it also delivers a lot of great messages that challenge a lot of the things that I think patients walk through and not always in a good way, right? So for instance, you know, the language, when when we hear the word cancer, it's a very scary word to most people. And instead of looking at that in a way of saying, okay, you know, I've got something that I didn't ask for, didn't want, but how do we turn it into a positive, find the gifts, overcome the challenge and really learn from it? I felt was very important because a lot of us really struggle with how to do that. Mm -hmm. So the book is really my message on finding the gifts and the adversity. And and it doesn't have to be cancer. It really can be any adversity that that comes our way because it's coming. It's coming. Was that your initial response uh, or was your initial response something else, you know, to the actual diagnosis? It's a great question. And I think the initial response was sort of one of just, 
it, it was almost robotic because this is what I do for a living, right? I diagnose. So it, it wasn't, we, it wasn't weird, right? To say, oh, by the way, here are the test results. This is what it shows. And here's what, what's going to come. So I was in sort of this robotic mode, I think at first of, okay, I got to take this on. And then it, it was, there was an interesting dichotomy because I would love to tell you, I had no moments of self-pity. And that's not true because they they definitely came. But I'm usually a pretty typical like, okay, let's just, you know, I love a challenge. Um, I love the competition and I love to overcome. So I thought, no, you know what? I've got to do this. The other interesting thing is my mother was walking through terminal illness at the time. So there was almost a switch that flipped for me too, where I said, you know what? I can't, I can't walk down this journey in a bad way because my mother is on this path too. And she doesn't need to worry about me now. So I've got to turn on my A game and really make this like it's no big deal Wow! in order to help me and to help her get through her journey. Oh, my goodness. I got to pause here for a moment because you were going through something very serious yourself and you were thinking about serving somebody else. Where, where did you develop this sense of such great compassion for others? Is this, let me ask the question this way. Looking back at your life before the diagnosis, were you always this type of person who was in service of someone else or did you dig deeper? I would have to say that was always part of my character. I don't know that a diagnosis just flips the switch completely from not compassionate to compassionate. And especially as a physician, I mean, I see some really sick people who have you know, struggled for a lot of years. And to have that empathy and the ability to listen and absorb and encourage has always been part of my practice, but I've got to give my mother, my mother credit who just for everybody's sake is no longer with us, but she really, and actually even my grandmother, they just exuded that characteristic of, you know, we put people first and people are good by, by nature. And to, to really see that first, before we look at all of the negative things that as humans, we tend to judge by. So I, I really have to give my mother and grandmother credit for leading by example through my entire life. Um, they were just great humans. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, they produced a great person in you for sure. Now, oh, thank what, you. what did cancer teach you, if anything? And you, you feel free to lot. say, yeah. <laughs> it taught me a lot. Okay. Um, it, it taught me to slow down. I think that was the first reason that um, I had been, you know, retrospect is easy, right? When you trace back your steps, you can go backward and go, oh, I was working on something all along. And at the time that I diagnosed, mom was walking through this challenge. I was going through a terrible divorce. The dog died of pancreatic cancer. I mean, I had this, I had the sob story and I was working very, very hard and lots of hours. And the first thing was just to stop and listen and and pay attention and go, what do I need right now in my life that I'm not honoring mm -hmm. that this diagnosis is gonna teach me how to pay attention to? So I think that was the very first thing. The, the second thing was the importance of people. And I know, you know, as we walk through life, we always aspire for the bigger house and the bigger boat and the vacation and write all of this stuff in our life. And yet people at that moment became so much more important to me because I realized who showed up, 
and who I thought would show up that didn't. And it allowed me that gift of really sort of reworking relationships to make mm -hmm. them bigger, better, stronger, and, and eliminate the ones that just didn't serve me. And I think those were two enormous gifts for me. Mm -hmm. So looking at the title of this book, and I love the primary title, Positively Altered, how did you come up with that? <laughs> it was an accident. A lot of stuff okay. is an accident. Okay. So the original working title was Pregnancy is Worse Than Cancer. Mm. That was the original. Mm. And when I ran that past a few people, I actually really upset some people because they said, how dare you say that pregnancy is actually worse than cancer? And I said, well, but in my experience, and there's a whole chapter in the book about that, in my experience, it actually was. I had horrible pregnancies. I was sicker through the pregnancies than as my walk through Hodgkin's lymphoma. So my perspective was that. Well, I didn't really want to upset people and I didn't want to turn people off from writing the book. So a couple of people who were on my team to help me build the brand and, and work the book launch, we had probably, oh, I don't know, a couple hundred working titles and I fell in love with none of them. Mm -hmm. It just, they didn't make sense. They didn't resonate what I thought the story was all about. So I was working with a friend of mine, Johan, who did all of my Dr. Cindy branding. And he sent me this enormous, annoying questionnaire, right? That these branding companies do so that they can represent you well. And as I was describing or answering a question that he had in terms of what I was trying to achieve with my goals, I finished it with, and I hope all of this mm -hmm. will allow you to become positively altered. And when I read it out, out loud, I went, uh -huh, that that's it, That that's the title that I was looking for. And then the tagline of finding happiness at the bottom of a chemo bag, I really wanted because I wanted to allude to the fact that there is some funny in this book, like we can laugh at some pretty dire situations if we choose to. And there are definitely giggles you're going to get if you walk through the chapters. Wow. Wow. So give us one example of those giggles that someone may discover. If they're open-minded. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> so as absurd as this is going to sound, and this is really one of my favorites, when I sat in the oncologist's office going over my options for treatment, the oncology nurse looked at me and she said, on week three, you are going to wake up and all of your hair is going to be on your pillow. That was the first time I cried. And I thought, you know, as women and men too, but especially as women, we identify a lot by our hair. It's important to us. We spend a lot of money coloring it and styling it and coloring it. And I didn't really want to walk through this journey with no hair. Mm. The first thing you think about when you see a woman who doesn't have hair is she's sick. And I didn't want to be perceived as being sick. So I invested in what's called cold caps. It's a company out of New Zealand and you wear these ridiculous hats. They almost look like an old fashioned football helmet mm -hmm. as you put it on your head and they freeze your head to minus 32 degrees. Ooh. You start it before chemo treatment. You wear it for about seven hours after, and it deters the hair follicles from being attacked so that you don't lose your hair. Wow. So, you know, as everybody's probably thinking, well, what's so funny about that? Um, that's not the funny part. The funny part is and I talk about this in one of the chapters as well in the book is women spend a lot of money also waxing other body parts to get rid of hair, right? Whether it's mustaches, whether it's genital areas, whether it's legs, right? We spend a ton of money doing that. And what was so ironic and funny to me through this whole experience is I spent thousands of dollars 
to save the hair on my head, but yet the other parts of my body, I won't show you anything that you don't want the hair on, right? I still had to write the check and pay to have the money in order to get waxed <laughs> because the chemo didn't cause that hair to fall out. Yeah. So it was the absurdity, right, of, of that dichotomy of, I wish we could have picked where we lost the hair. I love your sense of humor. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> let me ask you this. We'll talk, we'll just speak a little later, but let me ask you while you're on this point. Does this story show up in any of your speeches on stage? Sometimes, right? Okay. So uh -huh. depending on the audience or what we're talking about, um, I'll pull in different aspects of my journey as well as even other other people's journeys that I've shared with on the, on the physician side in order to relate, right? So the key in the speaking is really finding what resonates with the audience? You know, what do we hit on so that we can all laugh together and start to change the journey in a more positive direction? But yeah, that's 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 one I share. It's it's one yeah. of my personal favorites anyway. Yeah. Well, look, it sounds like a very interesting book. Um, Positively Altered. That's a powerful title from my perspective. I would look into health and wellness with you, if that's okay. Health sure. and wellness. And I want to get some insights from the perspective of a chiropractic internist and nutritionist. Firstly, help us understand what is a chiropractic internist? Sure. So if you think about going to a general practitioner for anything, I do the same things. However, and this is based on, on state law in the state of Illinois, where I practice, I will not deliver your baby. I will not write you a prescription for medication and I will not perform surgery. Anything else is fair game. So whether you're dealing with fatigue or hormone issues gut problems, the common cold, you name it. Um, somebody with that has probably walked through my door in the last 25 years. And we approach it a little differently. So the, the goal is twofold. One is to figure out the underlying reason that you wound up in that state in the first place. Mm. So we don't actually treat the disease or necessarily the symptoms. We look for and try to find the underlying cause and treat the underlying cause in order to make the correction. Mm -hmm. The second part of that then is using both food and proper, what we call nutraceuticals or supplements in order to help overcome those issues too, eliminating a lot of the side effects that we commonly see with the pharmaceutical medicines. Mm -hmm. So now as a chiropractic nutritionist, did this happen simultaneously? Or no. did you, okay, so tell us about that. Right, so when I was in school, the way I wound up in the internal medicine um, realm was I had a very important uh, professor. His name was Dr. Frank Strell. He wound up being my mentor and he taught obstetrics and gynecology. And I thought, this is weird. Why are chiropractors even like talking about this? This is not what I thought it was. Well, come to realize that, again, we are able to practice primary care in the state of Illinois. And he did this complete you know, 180 from me wanting to be a sports chiropractor, all neck and back and, you know, the occasional ankle and wrist, excuse me, to being a true primary care physician. So when I stepped out of school, I started in what they call a diplomate program. That's how I got the board certification immediately. So it took me three years and a bunch of weekends and a lot of testing and got that diplomate. Um, about a decade, maybe a decade and a half later, what was allowed was, is all of my education in the internal medicine also encompassed a lot of the nutritional component. Mm -hmm. So there's also that diplomate um, where we are allowed to use that current coursework to sit for that board exam. So again, I had to pass another test mm -hmm. um, that was pretty rigorous. 
And once passing that test, I was awarded those letters as well. So now I can claim the internist and the, and the nutritionist behind my uh, name. Yeah. So nutrition is important then from it your is. perspective. Uh -huh. Oh, very, yeah. very. I, I really do believe, and this is going to sound like there's a huge dichotomy, <clears throat> excuse me, to this too, that if we truly ate well, I mean, really well, and we gave our body the macro and the micronutrients that we need on a cellular level, and we did it all the time, a good portion of my patient population wouldn't need my help. Wow. You know, because we'd be feeding the body what it needs. Yeah. On the other hand, the environment that we live in is so toxic and our food is so lacking nutrients and it's, you know, covered in pesticides and chemicals that, you know, I almost have this joke and it's going to sound terrible that like, if I taught you to eat perfectly, you're dead. Cause I have nothing to give you because there's always something that we're combating, unfortunately, in today's world that, you know, can be construed as a little bit, um, I'll call it evil, if you will, versus, you know, what we really need to, to provide nutrients. So it, it, it's, it's an interesting balance. We, we have to fight. I got you. I hear you. Uh, food is great. Uh, vegetables are great, but how they're raised or farmed also determines how beneficial it could be. So let's look at this then. But let's assume that you, you have access to some good fruits and vegetables. Can uh, fruits and vegetables help a person maintain or deal with less obesity? Sure, sure. Yeah, we, you know, we're a population that number one overeats, right, right, in terms of portion. So even if we're eating well, usually we're consuming too much. Mm. We're certainly diving into processed foods and sugars and chemicals, and all of those contribute to the increase of fat cells. So when we turn back to, um, here's how I describe it, things that grow mm. on a tree, mm. grow in the ground, we can pull off a vine, and those are your fruits and vegetables, right? When we focus there, and we can even incorporate some of our meats and our, our fish, um, you know, the rate of obesity is absolutely going to go down if we limit portion control and we get back to the basic nutrients that we really do need. We just eat things we don't need. Yeah, I hear. So what about, uh, and you can pass on anything that I ask you, by the way, but I'm just curious, what about cardiovascular issues? Fruits, vegetables, could it help in that area? Or must we take the pharmaceutical route? Oh, yeah, no. I it, So that must is a pretty dangerous word. <laughs> um, it, it really is. And, and my approach with most patients is mm. if we start to see changes, let's say high blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, right? Anything that starts to show that we're headed down the wrong direction. If I have a patient that 100% will give me that buy-in of, look, we're going to change diet, we're going to change exercise or start to exercise, and we're going to do those things that we know are really important in the first place. And they change, you know, big high five, huge win. We don't have to have any conversation about taking a pill. If they sort of have buy-in, they're not really committed, or it's not completely working, then I'm still a fan of going more of that supplement, that natural route. Really in our, our branch of medicine, we have an answer for everything that the pharmaceuticals typically offer most of the time. Now, if you're really, let's say you get down that pathway too far, um, you know, you walk into the hospital in the middle of a heart attack. Certainly I don't have a food that's going to pull you out of that heart attack, right? There is absolutely a time and a place for medical intervention and pharmaceutical drugs. My goal though, always again, is to figure out how did you get there in the first place? Mm -hmm. How do we reverse that process? And using food really provides again, the cells exactly what they need to be healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 it's interesting. Cholesterol gets a very bum rap. <clears throat> we spend a lot of time 
in this country, and I think even out of this country, writing prescriptions for people who have elevated cholesterol. And yet changing diet and exercise and even some good herbs, it, it has proven just as effective, if not more effective without the potential side effects like muscle aches and pains, memory loss, et cetera. And then what I see happening, and unfortunately I see this a lot, is we're now driving cholesterol so low, only based on that cardiovascular you know, expectation, that without cholesterol, it actually can't live without cholesterol. So I don't know if you remember back in science class, back in grade school, there was a little picture of a cell with a nucleus and a mitochondria, and you had to label that in order to pass a test in biology class. Mm -hmm. Well, that little energy center, the mitochondria, needs cholesterol to manufacture energy in the body. Oh. So, so if the cholesterol now is too low, we have trouble producing energy. And then we also have produ trouble producing certain hormones. So like for men, especially, we're seeing a lot of low libido, erectile dysfunction, because if you don't have enough cholesterol to manufacture your testosterone, now we have low testosterone. And now we've got, you know, men and women running into the office, wanting other prescription drugs to solve some other challenges. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem was really the cholesterol in the first place. Uh -huh. So it, it's an interesting cascade that we see that again, getting back to that root, no pun intended there of the fruits, the vegetables and, yeah. and all of those foods that we need, if we just got them properly, we probably wouldn't see those elevations, you know, of mm -hmm. diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, et cetera, that we see. Right. Now, uh, there are lots of nutritional programs out there. Do you have a preferred one? I mean, some people are plant-based, some people are something else, some people are 80-20. What about you? Or, or uh -huh. do you have a preferred? Yeah. Yeah, the one that works. Uh, <laughs> I got you. Is my preference. So it's very interesting. Um, I'll tell you kind of a funny story. So when keto became really big, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody was on the keto bandwagon. We're losing lots of weight. We're feeling amazing. I thought I'm going to try this. I'm going to see what it's all about. I want to know what my patients are going to walk through if I recommended it. So I'm actually a really good eater to begin with. Mm -hmm. So when I went keto, I didn't throw in the ice cream and the bacon. I just increased my good fats, coconuts, eggs, salmon. Still ate very healthy. Within seven days, I gained seven pounds hmm. and I was crabby. Wow. And nobody wants to see me crabby. I am not a good crabby person. So it was interesting. I thought this is insane, right? Like this is supposed to be such a great program to feel good on. And especially because I'm eating healthy. So what's interesting and how I'm going to answer your question is I went back into my genetic testing and I looked at my genetic makeup from a diet and wellness standpoint. What was very interesting that I sort of forgot about is I don't break down fats well genetically. So when I elevate the amount of fats I was consuming, I wasn't utilizing them because it was too much for my body to handle, which is why I gained the weight and I didn't feel good, you know, emotionally. So to answer your question, it's a really interesting dance because there is no one size fits all. Mm -hmm. Whatever the latest fad is, is going to work for a handful of people and it's not going to work for others. And it really needs to be an individual conversation and sometimes some trial and error to say, okay, if we go with this plan, how do you feel? What does the blood chemistry look like after we do this for, you know, month two or three? And if weight loss or weight gain is the goal and that's working, the energy is outstanding and the blood chemistry looks good, then we found the right plan. Yeah, so I like it's, it. very, it's very difficult. It's a lot of trial and error. Yeah, I like it, though. What you're saying is that the plan that works best for you and your genetics and all of this stuff. But yeah, I like that a lot. OK, so I want to dig a little deeper into health and, and wellness 
from a chiropractic perspective. First, I want to ask you, because there's so many, look, when I was a kid growing up, I only knew about family doctor. I didn't know about all of this, all this, but now we got integrative this, we got functional dad, we got, you know. So uh, would you say that natural medicine is a good fit, a good label for you? Or is there another label that identifies you as a, a doctor? Yeah. You know, it, it's funny because depending on what decade we talk about, the labels mm. changed, right? So natural physician was thrown out. Then we went holistic. Mm. Then, you know, now it's functional medicine doctor, which actually is sort of a made up term. You know, there's no degree in functional medicine, mm. you know? Um, so I, I'm not sure what to call it, <laughs> quite, <laughs> quite, quite frankly, you know, uh -huh. natural is an interesting word to me because where we say we use things that are more natural, that is true. But if you look at my shelves in my office, and I, I stock probably over 600 different products, they're still manufactured products, right? Yeah. Like somebody had to take the herb and process it and get it into a capsule in order for us to swallow it. So when you look at it from that regard, that word natural is always really hard for me because natural means I walked out to my front yard and pulled that mango off the tree, which by the way, we don't have in Chicago. So I have to relocate for that. But, you know, you pull that mango and you eat it fresh off the tree without the pesticides or the processing. That to me really defines the word natural. Mm. So it's tough. It's really, it, it, I think it's really hard uh, to describe exactly what we do. And I still love the term physician and I love the term medicine because whether you use a pharmaceutical or a supplement or food, it really is all medicine at the same time. Got you. That's helpful. Great. Okay. So I, I, I grabbed the word functional and I applied it to you. So maybe that's the word. Okay. So would you say that you, you work in functional neurology or does functional mislabel neurology from the work that you do? Yeah, interesting. So we actually, in our profession, we actually have chiropractic neurologists as well that then I would say practice more functionally. So I don't, I would never claim to be a neurologist. It's not where my training is at, but yet the neurological system within chiropractic is essential to what we do. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the spine and the nerves that come out of the spine that innervate our skin and our organs and our muscles, the health of all of that is extremely important to what we do. And here's how I describe it. If you live in a house and you have cable TV and you've got the cable box in the backyard, there's a cable that runs right from the backyard to the television that gives you this amazing, great picture. And if you think of the spine that way as your cable box and your nerves, the neurological system as that cable running through, and your TV is all of those end organs that the nerves innervate, if everything is functioning perfectly, you get this gorgeous picture. Mm. And if anything isn't working, the spine, the box, the nerves, or the cable, or even the connection then to that end result, you're going to get a fuzzy picture or no picture. And that's how I define poor health. Mm -hmm. So from a chiropractic perspective, the neurological system is really essential to what we do to make sure that everything is functioning well. Mm -hmm. I like it. I like it. Okay. So I want to talk with you now about patients. I'm not, <laughs> you know, you know, just uh, uh, nothing specific here, but, you know, from your practice, what are some of the health challenges that patients bring to you? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I would love to give you a rundown of symptoms, but I actually think what's more important right mm -hmm. now is their challenges are, their challenges are, 
it's very difficult to find a doctor that gives them time that will listen. Wow. We're, we're seeing medicine change where a lot of it is corporate run. It is structured by policy and procedures and patients walk in and get their six minutes. And if they don't get out what they're trying to get out in the six minutes, you know, it's almost like a lot of the physicians have moved on to the next patient. So I think really being heard and time is one of their biggest challenges. Uh-huh. The, the second one that I see that then does transfer into what they came in for is really how to resolve the problem. Mm. So we've turned into a, a country, really an environment of Band-Aids, right? You have this symptom, here's your drug, here's your Band-Aid. This doesn't feel good. Let's just do surgery and hope that it gets better. Mm. And what really needs to be done, in my opinion, goes back to what I've said earlier, is that is we've got to find that underlying cause. You know, what is that iceberg underneath the ocean Mm. that's destroying us that we don't see? And if we don't take the time as practitioners to really dive into that, I find that we do these patients a huge disservice um, because we might get them better for a little bit, but they're going to wind up right back in the office in six months with the same problem or a new problem because we didn't fix the underlying issue. But this just strikes me that, you know, I'm not a physician, but it just strikes me that you all are in a difficult situation because, you know, you you got a business, you got overhead, let's face it, you got staff. And then how much time, how much time reasonably can a physician spend with a patient? I mean, I'm thinking, wait a minute, you got to get a bit of it out to pay the bills. Right. So I'm going to tell you as much time as it takes, but wow. the reason I'm able to do that, and I do do that in my practice was, and this is hard for a lot of people, it was really moving to a fee-for-service type practice. Mm. So what what happened to me is many, many years ago, and I almost hate to admit this because it's it's not a good feeling, but when I was in network for insurance companies, I would be sitting in the room with a patient and in the back of my head, I would be going, I have to get them out of my room. I'm not being compensated for this. You know, I, I have to move people through, Right. And that's not the reason I became a physician. You know, if I wanted to just make a lot of money, I would have found a different a different profession where, where I didn't need the time. Moving to a fee-for-service-based practice has been harder for a lot of patients to accept because they have insurance, right? And they want to use it. But when they realize they really do want the time and they really are looking for certain outcomes and they really want somebody who will do the work for them, they are willing to pay. So we moved to a time-based, so to speak, practice mm-hmm where if you take 15 minutes of my time, you're going to pay for it. If you take an hour and a half, you're going to pay for it. And we're very focused and and we don't waste anybody's time or money. But this way, it really does allow me to give you the time that you need without in the back of my head going, I can't pay the bills. You know, I have a mortgage that's not going to make it. And nobody needs a doctor thinking that in the back of their head when they're trying to take care of them. Right. You know, I I like it. And gosh, I love that you're so transparent about that. Well, the way it used to be, not the way it is now. So that's awesome. So, um, so you know, COVID has taught us, from my perspective, a lot of things. And one thing that a lot of people talk about these days is the immune system. Mm-hmm. So, how can a person, but the, the average Joe, how can a, or Jane, <laughs> how can <laughs> the average person, Doctor Howard, improve <laughs> their immune system, their immune health? Right. So I think there's a lot of things for that. Number one is we have to be exposed. And COVID has taught us not to be. Mm -hmm. And if you look back through our history, excuse me, Mm -hmm. so much talking, I have to get my water in. Sure. Um, 
if, if you look back in our history, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago, we we have learned, we just haven't always paid attention, that exposure is really important. So when we're exposed to germs and dirt and, you know, other children who are sick, that's what helps our immune system recognize something evil that's coming in in order to elevate certain blood cells that are trained to fight and will have a memory to fight again when something comes into the system. Mm. So when we don't have exposure and the body then gets, um, the body allows something new in, it's very stressful, right? When we're born, we actually are born with similar immunity to what our mothers have. We carry that for the first couple years. And then, you know, we start to develop our own. So, you know, the kids that play in the dirt, the kids that are touching things they shouldn't touch, that's what's really helped to start building the immunity. Now, on top of that, I'm going to bring back the good food, right? Mm. We've got to give the body all those tools so it's not fighting all the bad guys. Mm. It's about mental health. It's about taking time for yourself. It's about deep breathing. It's about exercise. It's about eliminating as many toxins in our environment, um, the chemicals we clean with, the stuff we breathe in, anything we can do to give the body the good tools and eliminate all the, the junk, mm -hmm. that's going to help stimulate the immune system in such a way that, that it's prepared. Because really, you know, if we couldn't do what we're designed to do, we'd all probably be dead by the age of two with what we're exposed to. Wow. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But if we don't take care of our body by the time we're 80, Eventually the body throws up the white flag and goes, you know, you've beat me up pretty good for 80 years. I'm done. You know, I lose. So we have to keep taking care of ourselves through all of the decades to make sure that we stay strong enough because the way we should all go is we all go to sleep over the age of hundred and don't just wake up. <laughs> right. Not, not from disease. Right. Um, and, and it's a lifelong process, really. I mean, there isn't a magic pill. There isn't a magic quick answer. It's, it, it's a lifelong journey of making good choices. Mm -hmm. Now, you said something that's so important, and I don't want, I mean, everything that you've said is important, by the way, but I don't want people to overlook this one, because along with what you were sharing just then, you mentioned mental health, and I connected it immediately to physical health. So uh -huh. tell us more about what you mean by that. Right. So when you look at our mental health or our, or our brain's capacity to respond appropriately, meaning it's okay to be sad and it's okay to be happy. And there are moments that we have different emotions, but if we fall into a state of true depression or constant anxiety, right? Something that's negative, that's consistent. Now we have to take a look and say, okay, where are the imbalances and, and, and what led us down that journey? So the connection from, from physical well-being is when we look at it, I'm going to lump it all into mood disorders. I'm just going to label it that way for the moment. We look at brain chemistry. So we produce certain neurotransmitters such as dopamine, GABA, acetylcholine, serotonin. And if there's an imbalance in those neurotransmitters, we don't feel good. And I describe it as like a seesaw, teeter-totter on the playground. We have excitatory neurotransmitters and we have inhibitory neurotransmitters. And when you put one of each on the teeter-totter, we now can play because it's balanced. But if we're too far on one side or the other, that's where we start to go down that path of having the symptoms more regularly. Then it gets more complicated because we produce a lot of those neurotransmitters in our gut. Mm. So you hear a lot in medicine about the gut-brain connection, and it's really true. If the gut isn't healthy, the brain isn't healthy, and sometimes we inhibit the ability to produce these neurotransmitters in our gut. Then I'm going to make it more complicated 
because the precursors to our neurotransmitters are amino acids and we get those from our proteins. Mm. So if we're not eating sufficient protein or we're not able to digest or break down our protein well, now we don't have the tools to manufacture those hormones. And then let's make it even more complicated, just one more step. When we're feeling stressed out, and let's face it, we all have some levels of stress in our life because stress can also be good. Mm -hmm. And we forget that, right? You know, marriage is good. Marriage is bad. New job is good. New job is bad. Getting fired is good. Maybe it's bad. You know, it's perspective, right? On all of these life events as to whether they're good or bad events. And with the increased stress that we have in our life, that puts strain on our adrenal glands, two little glands that sit by our kidneys. They pump out steroid hormones. A couple of them are cortisol and DHEA, and it also manufactures norepinephrine and epinephrine. And those have a huge connection also to gut brain health. Mm. So when we're under enormous amounts of stress, now we don't have what we call that fight or flight to fight the things that come into the body in order to recover. And then that can send us down the cascade. So our bodies are are wildly intricate and interesting. And unfortunately, you know, it's not like replacing one little tiny body part, but when you look at gut, brain, adrenals, and even other functions, any little piece that can be broken can send us down on that cascade that really can or can support or really diminish our mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we need people like you. <laughs> I'll keep working. <laughs> I'm still at it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want to, I want to go beyond medicine, if, if you're okay with that. Sure. Okay. Uh, beyond science, you know. So, and um, once again, you may pass on any question that I ask. Okay. I'm curious, is there a connection between chiropractic and spirituality? Sure. Sure. Can you say more, please? Um, you know, it's interesting because we get patients in sometimes where they need to be educated and they say, I don't believe in chiropractic. Mm. And my response is, well, chiropractic is not a religion. You don't actually have to believe in chiropractic itself. But I do (laughs) think we have to believe or we choose to believe in the ability for our bodies to heal, Mm -hmm. right? And for whatever power we all believe in, because I know it's different for different people and that's okay, for whatever power we believe in to help facilitate that healing process as well. Um, it's interesting when, and it doesn't happen often in my office, but there's a handful of patients over the years that I can tell you aren't going to get well. Mm. I know they're not going to get well. And part of the reason they don't get well is that inability to open themselves up somewhat spiritually. And again, I do believe there's multiple levels of this mm-hmm. to the fact that, you know, what made the body can heal the body. Yeah. And we do have that capability. And if you honestly believe you are going to stay sick, yeah. you are going to stay sick. Mm. Mm-hmm. So whether it's, chiro- and I think it's true of all branches of medicine. I don't think chiropractic is alone in that. Um, we tend to fall into that category probably a little bit more often, but I think all branches of, of life and medicine, when you open yourself up that way spiritually to believe, um, it's amazing what gifts you get back. Yeah, truly. I, I can imagine. And, and from, you know, from, from what you all do, you all know so much about the human body. You all know more than the rest of us that this thing is not accidental, right? So, yeah. So, you know, in your work, and I've, I've studied you a little bit, and in your work, though, it seems to me that you share about adversity and resilience. So can you talk with us about some of the things that you've learned about both of them? Sure. About sure. adversity and, and also about resilience? Sure. So adversity is coming. 
I don't think we have a choice. You know, I don't know how to walk through a hundred years of life without something bad happening, right? I haven't met anybody yet who doesn't have a story to share in that regard. So one of the challenges I like to put out for people is, you know, not to ask for it, right? Like I didn't ask for cancer and I'm not asking for bad things to happen to anybody, but when it does show it, itself at my doorstep, I'm going to welcome it. And I'm going to welcome it because I know that there is something I can learn from it mm. if I choose to. So if I go with it, you know, with open arms and say, okay, this is what you brought me. Let's see what the gifts are and let's see what I'm going to learn. I'm able to walk through it better, stronger, sometimes faster, sometimes not, but with gifts on the other end. And that's where I think it's very closely tied to actually being resilient because I know, right? I know that if I can get over this, I can get over the next one because mm. I learned from that. You know, I, I, I joke in the, when you look in the financial world, right? Like a lot of the gurus out there that are consulting and writing books on how to become wealthy and, you know, become millionaires, they all have the failure, yeah. right? They were all bankrupt at one time or, you know, lost everything, you know, with whatever their story is. And they came back, right? Mm. They came back and now they're teaching other people how to overcome that adversity and be resilient too. So it doesn't matter health, money, spirituality. It, it, you can replace any of those words in that conversation, right? But the more you welcome it, the more you show yourself that you can plow through it, the more you learn from it to do it better the next time, yeah. that's what builds the resiliency. And and I still have a long way to go. I mean, there's, look, I'm, I'm, I joke, I'm going to be 112 when I die. That's my magic number. And I'm almost at midlife. So I got a lot more stuff that's going to come at me, I'm sure. And every time I get stronger and stronger and better and better at this. Wow. I love it because what you've just told me is that each one of us has the opportunity to, to become positively altered. I love it. <laughs> now, it's look, a choice. It's yeah. a choice. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. It's a choice. You don't have to be altered at all if you don't want to, but I think life is a whole lot better when we are. Uh-huh. I love it. And look, so I think I saw somewhere where you either, I'm not sure if it was a blog or a speech or whatever, you said, and if I got this wrong, correct me, that there is an inner superhero that each of us has. Did yes. I make that up or? No. Okay. What's that about? Yeah. So, so I was Wonder Woman. That was my, you know, that was my mantra through, through okay. this journey. And I think we all really do sort of have this superpower, right? And maybe it's the gift of communication or maybe it's motivation, or maybe it's just teaching somebody a new skill set. Mm -hmm. And, and all of those in a sense are really superpowers, right? Yeah, it's a way to yeah. save the day or save someone or motivate someone or, you know, inspire. And when we recognize what our gifts are, because we all have something, we all do. When we recognize that inner superhero power and use it for good and not evil, you know, now we put on the cape and we shine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you also teach uh, about, and you share about limiting beliefs. And that is not that we should wear them, but how to get, so you tell us what, what have you learned about limiting beliefs and how people can uh, get rid of them, recognize and get rid of them. Right. It's, it's, it's changing the language, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if I am never going to get well, mm -hmm. if I am not good enough, right. If I am not smart enough, whatever those I am messages are that in, that are in the negative connotation, I created those, mm -hmm. right. N nobody else has the power to determine that for me, except myself. 
So I'm an enormous fan of what I call these I am statements. I am beautiful. I am sexy. I am smart. I am strong. I am powerful. I am funny. Whatever those I ams are, I believe because I say them out loud and become exactly what I know I am. But if I sit here and I say I am ugly and I am stupid and I am not worth it, you know what? That's true too. Mm becomes true. And my inner, let's just take beauty. For example, when I can sit here and say, I am beautiful. There are going to be people that look at my picture and go, she's not that pretty. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because their perception of beauty may or may not be what I look like. Mm -hmm. But if I believe I am beautiful, whether it's external or internal, and hopefully both, and I believe that then really other people's opinions become somewhat irrelevant from the standpoint of how I move through my decisions in my life. And you're entitled mm -hmm. to your opinion. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take that away. But it is the language that we teach ourselves. So those limiting beliefs really are our own fault. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes we get them externally, mm -hmm. right? It's the parent that gives the wrong messages or the boss that gives the wrong messages. And that's where I, I also believe sometimes we have to be able to say, okay, this message doesn't work for me. And that's where sometimes it is okay to walk away from certain people or certain situations in your life that deliver those messages as mm -hmm. well. Um, mm -hmm. if, if you're not able to separate so that you don't hold on to them. Understood. Understood. Look, you've also uh, shared about the power of love. <laughs> what, 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 what are you trying to convey to us when you connect power to love? Yeah, it's, th there's an inner strength I feel that I have gained when I have truly given myself the opportunity to be honest transparent, true to myself in terms of who I am with another human being. And I think there's many levels of love. Um, you know, we think sometimes of love of family, right? You know, we're sort of born into that sort of a rule, um, picking a partner, which is also very important, but sometimes it's just friendships. And sometimes there's even, you know, love, like I would tell you, I have a love for my patients. It's not a romantic love but it's a love for who they are as humans and you know the goals that we're trying to achieve together. And when you're willing to open up and acknowledge that that's a real, true, raw emotion mm -hmm. and not be afraid of it, the gifts that come from that too are very strong. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of us get burned and then close that door. And it's it's very sad to me because there's, there's no guarantee we're not gonna get hurt. Mm -hmm. That's part of the adversity and the resilience again. Indeed opportunity opportunity to be positively altered again <laughs> so I, th I think you've also connected power to friendship what do you want to tell us about that yeah i think i think the gift of friendship is enormous you know family we don't always pick right mm. you're born into it and friendship is a choice to a certain degree right we pick our friends um there's there's a enormous I'm going to, I hate to keep using the word gift, but I'm going to use it anyway. There, there's an enormous gift when somebody is willing to show up for you in a selfless way, because it's something that you need at that moment. But what's amazing about that friendship is when you realize back that when somebody steps up for you, you're probably also doing something for them that they may or may not know that they needed. Mm -hmm. There's an enormous power in that relationship that could last moments and it could last years. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, at some point, well, I don't know, um, when were you drawn to public speaking? Was this something that came out of high school, for example? <laughs> oh, uh, well, yeah. Right. So 
I think in actually it might have been college. You know, I joined one of those, and I forget what they're called. You know, the speaking groups where you learn how to oh, stand yeah. up, right? Right. Sure. You know, and you're just horrified and mortified because you know it's you know most people's least favorite thing to do. And as much as I didn't necessarily enjoy it in that setting, what happened for me is Dr. Frank Strail, who again I alluded to earlier in in our conversation, was teaching, and when he fell ill he asked me if I would take his place and I was terrified, right? I was like, oh, I can't, you know, how am I going to do this? And what if I don't know what I'm talking about? Anyway, I said, yes, because I always say yes to, to challenges is, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? I flop and I don't do it again, right? And what I recognized was, is when I step on stage and there is this connection of a couple things that happen. One, people are actually paying to listen to me. I have three kids that don't listen to me. Right? <laughs> so now there, there are people in the audience that actually pay money to hear what I have to say. So, so that was an interesting, um, you know, win for me, if you will. But there was this electricity that I got from the energy of an audience mm. or a question that's asked or a comment that allowed me to then share back or say something funny to lighten the mood. And it's that exchange of, of energy in a room with people that just lit me up. And I mm. knew from that moment on that like, this is just, it, it jazzes me. It's a high, like nothing else I experience. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing it now for, oh boy, about 15, 16 years. Wow. I travel all over the country, you know, it, as small an audience as 30, as big of an audience as, you know, three, 4,000 hmm. and the intimacy as well as the big room still provides an energy that I just really love. It's, it, it's one of those things that if I have time and I can do it, the answer is yes. Wow. That's nice. So what would you say is your core message or core messages? Yeah. Um, do it, <laughs> you know, whatever you're challenged with, it, you know, look to say yes, right. In your life. Number one, uh, two, I really want you to build a team. It, it's really important, whether that is family, friends, practitioners, animals, I don't care who, you know, you bring in your inner circle, but really build a team to help you walk through, through life and, and recognize that sometimes those team members change, uh, you know, gotta face the adversity. That's a big message for me. Please laugh at yourself with mm -hmm. others, not at others, but with mm -hmm. others, um, laugh at the situations, you know, there's numerous studies that show us that laughter can get us through, you know, many obstacles mm -hmm. and then really be reflective. You know, I would love to tell you everything I do in my life. I learned from that's probably not, I'm probably quite not that attentive, but at the end of the day, I really sit down and I think, how did I do today? Mm -hmm. Did I make some good choices? Did I affect people the way I wanted to, how did I do for myself? And if the answer to that question is I did great, you know, I fall asleep, start the day the next day, trying to do the same way. If I reflect and I think, wow, you know, maybe I hurt somebody's feelings or I didn't make the right decision. Um, I could have done something even better for myself. I still fall asleep really quickly because <laughs> mm -hmm. I do sleep well, but it gives me an opportunity to say, you know what, tomorrow's really a gift that I get to try to do this a little bit differently and a little bit bigger and a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So that reflection, I think, is really important for us as humans too to have mm -hmm. in order to facilitate that growth. So mm -hmm. th th there's really tons of messages and it's all just wrapped it up into like, let's move through this life in a way that yeah. we can have some fun yeah. Yeah. And, and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I, I get it. Uh, can you think of one memorable moment you had as a platform speaker? 
Oh, you know, <laughs> the first thing I think about, and it's not a, not a very specific example, but I actually love when something comes out of my mouth that's kind of inappropriate that I didn't mean it to be, and somebody calls me out on it and we get a good laugh from it. Uh-huh. Okay. You know, sometimes you don't, people hear things differently, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then it's just fun because it becomes a laughter about me, that self-deprecating humor of I can go, oh, I definitely screwed that up and said that wrong. (laughs) And I think it gives others in the audience that ability to realize too, that when we do screw something up, Mm -hmm. we just have to laugh and it's okay. You know, it it, it doesn't have to be life altering when we make a mistake. I like it as permission to be human. Yeah, for for sure. sure. Yeah. But look, there are a couple of other things. We're almost done. Okay. The other things that I want people to know about you that they may not know if they're watching or, or listening to you uh, on our podcast. Um, but I, I think I discovered that you were once or maybe still are a dancer. Yes. So that was the dream when I was young. The dream was to become a professional dancer um, and eventually a choreographer in New York. Oh. And it was interesting because when I was looking at colleges, I got accepted to New York University, which was the dream school in the dance program, and I did not get accepted academically. And my father said to me, I am not paying for college for you to get a certificate and not a degree. And I went, okay. (laughs) So I picked a different school. And I wound up starting my, my college career at Arizona State as a dance major, wound up transferring to the University of Wisconsin Madison. And when I graduated, I did dance professionally for a couple of years. And then I learned that I actually kind of liked money a little bit. (laughs) Not a whole lot of money in that profession, unless you get very lucky. You wait a lot of tables, you live in a, you know, studio apartment. Um, And not that I needed a lot of money, but, you know, I wanted to be able to put food on the table. So I wound up jumping out of that, um, you know, as a profession and, 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 I miss it to a certain degree and I'm grateful Mm. for, for, you know, some of it too, because I'm also in a profession now that I absolutely love. Now it's just dancing around with the kids or in the kitchen when nobody's looking, when the music is playing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd still tell you I'm a dancer. Just don't get paid for it. Uh Uh-huh. Sounds good. Sounds good. Now, this one surprised me. And I want sure people get this. I read that you once were or are a powerlifter. Yes. Okay. So tell me about that. What what attracted you to powerlifting? How did that work? It's an interesting sport to couple with dancing, right? So I was always very interested and belonged to a gym in high school, loved the weight training, was very active in the gym. And when I was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I wound up meeting a couple of guys that competed in powerlifting. And I'm watching them lift ridiculously heavy weights and the grunting and the, you know, the noise. And <laughs> I don't know what it was that that kind of jazzed me about that, but it did. And they got me involved in the lifting and eventually took me to some competitions. Um, And yes, I did wear the ugly wrestling singlet. Um, It was not a very feminine look, certainly. But again, being a very competitive person, it was just that that idea that not only could I compete against others, but I was also really competing against myself, right? Mm -hmm. You know, lift more, do something better, beat my own records. And it became something really fun that I did through college. Uh-huh. Do you still lift? I do still lift. The power lifting is long gone. The knees uh-huh. are, you know, a little bit older and can't quite take the heavy weights anymore. But yes, I absolutely enjoy still being in the gym. Uh-huh. Okay. It's a fun place for me. Uh-huh. 
Well, look, I've had a good time, Dr. Howard, talking with you. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate all the questions and the interest, and, and I enjoyed it as well. So thank you. Uh-huh. You've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast. Our guest today has been Dr. Sydney Howard. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton. Until next time, good day. <laughs>